Hello and welcome to Stonebridge Community Church's online service. I am Pastor John, one of the pastors here at Stonebridge, and we are continuing our sermon series, Jesus and Moses. We're actually wrapping up that sermon series this week, and next week we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount and beginning a new series focused on the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be talking about tonight in our sermon. We are glad that you're connecting with us. We are glad that you're able to worship through the online service And we pray that the Holy Spirit is with you and that God connects you to our community here. So may you be blessed where you are. The way this service works is after this welcome, you'll hear some announcements. And then we'll have the Word of God read, the Word of God preached, and a couple songs to help guide you in worship. So may God bless you where you are. And may the Holy Spirit guide you in your worship. Let us begin worship now. safe within your name this we know this we know promise never to forsake what you begin you will sustain this we know this we know
For those of you who I haven't met yet, haven't had a chance to, to talk to you, I'm Pastor John, one of the pastors here at Stonebridge. And we have been going through, as Pastor Jonathan said at the beginning of the service, our series focusing on Jesus and Moses and the way the Gospel of Matthew compares these two. But I have to confess to you all that this last week I've been a little preoccupied and distracted from sermon study by the Rams game. So if at any point in this service I accidentally refer to the Gospel of Matthew as just Stafford, you know what's going on here. Or if I randomly say Aaron Donald. For those of you who aren't familiar, those are Rams players. Oh, I'm nervous about that game. Anyways, we're here for the Word of God. So I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And we will be concluding this sermon series, but also looking ahead at what God has for us in these next few months this morning in the sermon as well. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And please join me in prayer. Lord, we gather here this morning to hear from you. We gather this morning to hear your word. Lord, we know that you are active in this world. We know that you are active in your creation. We know that you are active in our lives. And we wish to follow you. Help us, Lord, to know how to do so well. Teach us now that we might know what your will is for us. Teach us now that we might respond appropriately to you. Teach us now that we might be your people. Speak to us, Lord. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I recognize that I kind of left you all on a cliffhanger there with the scripture passage. It builds up to Jesus being about to say something. And then we just cut it off right there. I did that because I think that that's the level of tension that Matthew actually builds up to this point. Because what Jesus is about to say, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, it'll go on until the end of Matthew chapter 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus' longest and most extensive teaching, not just in the Gospel of Matthew, but anywhere in the Bible. Some have speculated that Matthew, this gospel, was placed at the very beginning of the New Testament. When those who put the New Testament together, they put Matthew at the very front because of this teaching. If you ever want to go and figure out what each gospel is most focused on and how it's presenting Jesus to us, go and look at the very first public words of Jesus in that gospel. And that will be sort of a thesis statement for what that gospel is trying to show us about Jesus. Because every single one of the gospels, they look at Jesus from a slightly different angle. So here in the gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus' first public statement. And Matthew has built up very carefully to this moment so that when you hear Jesus, that he's opening up his mouth and he's about to say something, you're waiting with anticipation as to what he's going to say. Now, in this sermon series, we're looking at Jesus and Moses and the way the Gospel of Matthew compares those two and the ways that we can compare those two in our lives also. 
And at first, you may not know it. But in the Gospel of Matthew, this scene and verse 1 here is one of the clearest comparisons to Moses that's made in this Gospel. And once you know what to see and look for, it becomes more and more clear. We have to keep in mind that in this gospel, before this speech that Jesus is about to give, before the Sermon on the Mount, in this gospel, Matthew has carefully made it clear that Jesus is the new Moses. He quotes the prophet saying that, out of Egypt I will call my son. God saying that. In the same way Moses came up out of Egypt and took the Israelites out of Egypt, Jesus and his family come back up out of Egypt. Matthew has shown us that in the same way that when Moses was born, Pharaoh decided to take the lives of many children. Herod did the same exact thing when Jesus was born. And Matthew has also shown us the temptation where Jesus was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, similar to how Moses was up on Sinai 40 days and 40 nights. But that where Moses ultimately failed, Jesus succeeded. So then we get to verse 5-1 here. And that phrase, he went up the mountain. It may seem like just a narrative right there. But in reality, it's a direct quotation from Exodus 19.3. And when you read Matthew in Greek, and you go to the Greek Old Testament which is written in Hebrew, but there's a Greek translation, which is likely what Matthew would refer to, you realize it's a verbatim, word for word, letter for letter. And later on, when they added accents to the scriptures, accent for accent, verbatim quotation. And in Exodus 19.3, that's when Moses goes up the mountain to see God at Sinai and to receive the law. That phrase, he went up the mountain, it actually became associated with Moses. It's used 24 times in the Bible. 18 of those are in the first five books of the Bible focused on Moses. It's a phrase that would have brought Moses to mind. And when Jesus is going up onto a mountain to give a speech, it's clear that he is ascending in the same way Moses did. And then Jesus will go on to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he quotes the law of Moses over and over again. The way Matthew is presenting this, the Sermon on the Mount is presented as the new law. More exact, actually, though, would be the Sermon on the Mount is presented as the authoritative interpretation of the law. That for Jesus' followers, this is how you are to view the law. And the Sermon on the Mount, it contains some of Jesus' greatest hits. It it has turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. It has don't store things up in in, in this world, store your treasures in heaven. I mean, it really is some of Jesus' greatest hits, those sayings that have broken out into culture. So this speech, it's meant to be received as a new statement of the law. And now here's the hole that I know I've just dug myself into, all right? Because here's the problem, and here's the tension with this. For the rest of this sermon, I'm going to be arguing that you should take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, more seriously than I think most Christians do. 
But I've just said that this is a new law, and there's nothing that's going to turn Protestant Christians off to something than saying it is the new law. Because I think we're trained to think of the law as negative, the law as punitive. But Matthew makes it clear. This is the new law. And we are to take this seriously. There is a tension here, though. As Christians, we are taught that we're not saved by works. That it isn't our own efforts that can bring us into salvation, into heaven, into God's presence. That we are saved through grace. So I think as Christians, we don't always like talking about ethics. We don't like talking about human behavior because we don't want to give the impression that that's what we're trying to be saved by. But we have to talk about ethics because Jesus talks about ethics. So what exactly are ethics? When I'm saying ethics here, what I'm really referring to is simply the way human beings behave and reflecting on the ways we behave and the ways we interact with each other, determining what is a good action, what is a bad action. That's what I'm talking about with ethics. And too easily, when you just hear the term ethics, you can start to think that we are talking about works-based salvation or something along those lines. There was a TV show a few years ago called The Good Place. Some of you may have watched it. It was a, it was a funny show. It was all about ethics. And the whole premise of it was that there is an afterlife, and where you go in that afterlife, either the good place or the bad place, is determined through a scoring system based on your actions in this life. Numerical value has been attached to each possible action. And if your score is at a certain point, you go to the good place. If it's too below, you go to the bad place. That's, I think, what comes to mind for many people when we start talking about ethics. But Jesus' longest speech, the Sermon on the Mount, his most extensive teaching, it's all about ethics. This whole teaching, this new law that he presents, this interpretation of Moses' law, it's all about human behavior and how we are supposed to act, how we are supposed to engage with this world. So how do we resolve this tension? I mean, what about justification by grace through faith, our belief that we are not saved by our own works but we are saved through the grace of God. How do we reconcile these two? I think it's actually easier than a lot of Christians have approached it because we just have to accept the truth. There's more reasons to do the right thing than just being saved. There's many more reasons to do what God calls us to do than just getting into heaven or, getting, or avoiding hell. In fact, there's much more to Jesus' message than just being saved. And if you take Jesus' words seriously, you realize that. There's more to Jesus' message than just being saved. And the Sermon on the Mount, these ethical instructions that Jesus gives, we should be taking them seriously. For at least three reasons that I can see. I'm sure there are many more, but there are three reasons that I see. And the first of these reasons is, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, God is revealed in this speech. 
God is revealed through the way Jesus commands his disciples to act and to behave. God wants us to behave in the same way God does so that we can be reflections of God in this world. And Jesus gives these commands because this reveals the heart of God. So when Jesus is instructing us how to behave, we get a glimpse of how God behaves. When Jesus tells us, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor, and including your enemy as neighbor. When Jesus gives these interpretations of the law, that's a reflection of how God behaved with us. Though we were enemies with God, God reached out to us and saved us. When we're instructed to go the extra mile for somebody who might have wronged us, that's what God did in sending Jesus to us. God's will, God's character is revealed here. So if we don't take the ethics Jesus lays out seriously, we're denying ourselves an opportunity to learn deeper truths about God's character. We're denying ourselves the opportunity of seeing God's character clearly. So God is revealed in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's actually, actually true of the law in general as well. It's a reflection of God's desires and God's cares and God's character. The second reason that I think it's important we take the Sermon on the Mount seriously is this is the best way to live life. I mean, God's will for our lives is laid out here, and God wants the best for us. This is the way to live life to its fullest. The abundant life that we talk about, it's glimpsed most clearly here in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what life is supposed to look like. And it completely turns everything that we know about this world, everything that our human intuition tells us, upside down. The Sermon on the Mount, the way it talks about living life, is radically different than anything that had come before it and anything that has come after it that isn't based on it. This is the best way of living life. If you want to experience life to its fullest, if you want to know how to live life within the will of God, the Sermon on the Mount is your best indication of that. Now, we're not all, actually not all, none of us is going to follow the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. It is a very, very lofty standard. None of us is going to be able to live this out perfectly. We are going to fail. We are going to fall short time and again. But the Sermon on the Mount, it's still the standard by which we should try to live, by which we should try to hold ourselves up against. Jesus' words, this new law, it's what we should try to aspire to because it really is the best way of living life. And the third reason, the Sermon on the Mount and people trying to live it out this is the best way that hope is shared in this world. I said earlier that there's more reasons to do the right thing than just being saved. I really think Jesus, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he's not talking about salvation because he's talking to his disciples. Specifically, this speech is given to his disciples. He's teaching the people who would want to be his followers how to reflect God's character in this world so that the world might have hope. 
And people living the Sermon on the Mount out, trying to take Jesus' words seriously, that is the best glimpse of hope that I think anyone can receive. Many of us are taught that as Christians, our job is to defend the truth, to defend the Bible, to defend God, to defend Jesus, and to argue and fight against those who disagree with us. The thing is, that's not what Jesus actually calls us to do. And that's not the most effective way of defending the truth. Arguing people down, trying to just grab power to exert it over other people who we disagree with, that's not an effective way of helping people have hope. And I believe churches are gathered in order to spread hope in this world. And that's really what people need now. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes, he writes, The most powerful argument for the truth of Scripture is a community of people who exemplify the love and power of the God that they have come to know through the New Testament. I'll read that one more time. The most powerful argument for the truth of Scripture is a community of people who exemplify the love and power of the God that they have come to know through the New Testament. People seeing God's character in teachings like the Sermon on the Mount, people trying to live this out in practice, treating each other the way Jesus taught us to treat each other and treating the rest of the world the way Jesus taught us to treat the world, that is how the truth of Scripture is put on display for this world. I don't know how many people have ever really embraced a deep abiding hope because they were argued down or because they were told that they were so wrong. I don't know how many people have come to a deep and abiding hope in the God of the New Testament because they were shamed or ordered to do something. Most people come to hope, come to faith in Jesus because somebody Give them, gave them a glimpse of Jesus' character because they saw a community that glimpsed the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about. This is the best way to spread hope. And right now, our world is desperately in need of hope. This world is broken. This world is full of sadness and suffering. There is beauty that breaks through, but this is a broken creation that we live in. And more and more people are losing hope that there's something better, that there is something better that God will restore, that God will create again. The best way we spread hope is by taking Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount seriously so people can get a glimpse, an imperfect glimpse, but a glimpse of what that restored world looks like. Get a glimpse of something better, a better way of living life, the best way of living life. Church is giving people that glimpse. That spreads hope. Really, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not about salvation. Jesus is talking to his disciples. But it is an invitation into discipleship. Discipleship, disciple, that word, that term, it's one that I think has fallen out of vogue. I don't know if people use it outside of the church very much. But it's an important term for us as Christians. 
Being a disciple, it doesn't mean that you're just a student. Not in the way the New Testament uses the term. Being a disciple, it means you live with someone. You follow them. You embody their example. Jesus' disciples traveled with him where he went. And the Sermon on the Mount, it's an invitation to do so also. To be a disciple of Jesus. And wherever you are on your journey of faith, if you're brand new and you're just learning about Jesus, or if you've been going to church your entire life, the invitation to deepen your discipleship is open to each and every one of us. We all can learn how to be better disciples of Jesus. Not so that we can be saved because we know Jesus accomplishes salvation. We don't through our works. But so that we can share the hope that we have with this world and help other people know who Jesus is. Ultimately, like all of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, it's a glimpse into God's grace. God came here in the person of Jesus and took the time to not only save us from our sins, but to teach, to give us an example of life, to show us how to live. And that is God's grace to us, to show us that there is a better way of living life, that the cycles of suffering, the cycles of sadness, the cycles of violence that we are trapped in, there is something better. We glimpse it there in the Sermon on the Mount, and ultimately in the Sermon on the Mount, God's grace is revealed. So I hope that at this point, you understand why we're going to take the next few months to look closely at the Sermon on the Mount, to understand this way of life that Jesus teaches his disciples, this opportunity to take Jesus' words seriously, to not just lift them up as Lord, but to lift them up as teacher also. And to strive to be a community that gives people a glimpse of something better. That gives people hope that God can restore what is broken. Please pray with me. Lord, we know that in the Sermon on the Mount, you gave us a way of living life. You took the law that you had given to Israel and you interpreted it. You deepened our understanding of it so that we can see what life is supposed to look like. And Lord, we ask that you deepen our understanding of discipleship. That as we go and take these next few months to look at your words, that you would deepen our understanding of what it means to truly follow you. And help us to spread the hope we have in you through how we treat one another, through how we take your words seriously, to spread our hope in you as your disciples, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, as many of you know, my wife and I are expecting our second child uh, mid-March. And we are excited. But many in the church have come up to me and said, can, can we do some sort of baby shower or something? And while my wife and I appreciated that, appreciate the sentiment, we want to celebrate with the church, the truth is when it comes to baby stuff, we're, we're actually good to go. Um, we saved everything from our last child, anticipating we would probably want to have another. 
depending on how he turned out, but he's great. So we had another. Um, yeah, so far. No, I, I, I love him. Um, so what we decided to do was create an opportunity for us as a community to bless people who don't have what my wife and I already have. Um, Sarah's House is an organization here in town that is a longtime mission partner of Stonebridge Community Church. And what we're going to be doing is next week, we are going to have a little baby shower outside between the services. You can come and join. But in lieu of gifts for my wife and me, we have a list of things that women at Sarah's house could use right now. Um, A list of gifts for them so that we as a church community can bless them. So what we're going to do is we have a video actually to share with you a little bit about Sarah's house that talks about that ministry. And then Laura Malinowski, a member here at Stonebridge who also runs Sarah's house, is here and going to share a a few words about that. So I invite you to watch this video, recognize God's work here through Sarah's house, and then hear Laura's invitation about how you might be able to come alongside the work God is doing through this ministry. So let's watch this video. (laughs) 